You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining us today is State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District, Hillsdale and Branch Counties. Representative Fink, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Josh. Thanks again for having me. So I want to start, uh, you had some exciting news this past week. Uh, The Michigan Knife Rights Act, which you sponsored, is now going to the governor. Um, You introduced it right at the beginning of the term in January, passed the House in June, the Senate last month in October, um, and then because they passed a nearly identical bill, it had to go back to the House, uh, and it uh, succeeded there. So now it's going to Governor Whitmer. Uh, she hadn't signed it yet. We'll, we'll see what happens. How do you feel now that it's passed and uh, looking ahead? What, what do you expect? Yeah, it's exciting, Josh. The It's the first bill I introduced. As you said, I introduced it early in the term. I mean, maybe did you say in January? I don't remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's right, right at the end of January. It's, I think it's one of the bills that I had requested during, uh, between the, the election and, and when the, the term begins, the, uh, legislative service bureau asks if you want to kind of, you, you can, ha- you can prep a few bills basically for the next term. I think it was one of the ones that I, uh, I lined up at that point. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a good piece of legislation. I, I, I don't remember whether you or you and I talked about this bill already, uh, but it essentially would preempt local ordinances, for, which were more restrictive than state law with regard to a variety of behaviors uh, involving knives, including now, thanks to the Senate storage. That was the change as they added storage, but, you know, carrying it, uh, using it. Um, and the idea here is that if a person uh, knows what the state law is and is following the state law with carrying a knife, there's really not a good public policy reason to have variation there between uh, municipalities. Uh, it's not an issue where local control makes as much sense as a person being able to know what the law is in the state and then move freely about the state going about their business. You know, if it's a, a good example is if a landscaper carries a knife to slice open bags of mulch, mm-hmm. that knife shouldn't be illegal here and illegal next door. So that's that's the kind of idea of the bill. And, and it is interesting. It, it, it was the first one I introduced, and it's now the first one that's gotten out of both chambers. And it's headed to the governor's desk or is at the governor's desk now maybe. And uh, uh, we'll see what happens at this point. So have, what have you heard from your Democrat colleagues on, on issues like this? Of course, you're talking about uniformity here, not necessarily establishing this. This doesn't establish knife rules in the state. You're not changing state law as far as that goes. You're just saying it'll be uniform across the state. The local governments can't be more restrictive. Was there a lot of pushback from that? Yeah, you might say it's, it's sort of a question of organization more than uh, regulation, right? Like, who, where is this decision? Right. Been, yeah. Uh, well, I... I don't remember now what the vote was. I think I think a few more Democrats voted for it when it was in the House initially, uh, and in the Senate, five Democrats voted for it. Uh, and then when it came back to the House and it, and it had the change from the Senate, I think ten Democrats voted for it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and that includes the minority leader, uh, Donna Lazinski. Uh, so, there's some indication that you know this is, there's some bipartisan support here, pr- presumably because it isn't you know it's it, it's not. It doesn't really, yeah, as you say, it doesn't change what the knife laws are in the state, uh, but it does prevent confusion within the state about what the, the law is where you are. And this issue and other issues that that where where the topic of kind of local control uh, come, you know, can enter the conversation, it doesn't it doesn't always break down along partisan lines. And and honestly, local control is a a principle that people tend to value in some circumstances and then not value in other circumstances. And I think that's basically true 
uh, of everybody. I, well, the way I would put it is I always value the, the notion of, of a decision being made at the local level, but there are cases in which it doesn't make sense for, for us as a state policy to have it that way. Another example I could give you is, and I had an argument with some of my, um, some of my Republican colleagues about this at the time, but there was a bill to, uh, to make it the policy of the state that in any school district that if a student is uh, going to leave school in order to play taps at a military funeral, a funeral for a veteran, uh, then the uh, school will deem it a, an excused absence. And that, that obviously is something that could be and maybe you would prefer uh, in the abstract to be done at the local level. But uh, And it probably wasn't necessary, say, 50 or 100 years ago when more people played, you know, kind of classical instruments later into life and community bands were a big thing and things like that. But just the circumstances are most people who are playing a trumpet on a daily basis now are high school students. And so that's, uh, or cornet or whatever, but those, those are the people who can actually perform this uh, task. And I think it's a valuable thing to honor our, our veterans, you know, when they pass and are, are uh, at their funeral. And so I just, I looked at that question as I don't, again, I don't see a reason why as a matter of state policy, we would allow a school district, which is a subsidiary part of the government of our state to prevent a child from having an excused absence, a student from having an excused absence to go and do something like honor a veteran at his funeral. Yes, local decision-making is a value, but there are times when it doesn't really make sense to have variation across the state on a particular topic. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have Representative Andrew Fink with us. Another issue where we're talking about local control, a bill that passed this past week as well, House Bill 4722, which would prevent local governments from banning short-term rentals. Uh, That's rentals for less than 30 days. Um, The reason for this, there were some tourist towns, particularly Mackinac, Holland, um, and a few others, they've been cracking down on homeowners for listing their homes on uh, websites like Airbnb, uh, VRBO. Um, you supported this legislation. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Kind of, again, more the state preventing local governments from making rules and ordinances on, on a particular topic. Yeah, this this is one that didn't wind up being as, it's not quite as neat as those last two issues, because those those are issues where, where again, the prevailing vote and the vote I took was to essentially take this out of the hands of local governments. The way this bill, which is 4722, the short-term rental bill, the way this one landed is it's not quite as bright a line. And what it essentially does is limit the powers of the municipality to to kind of hemming in the short-term rental issue, but they can't ban it. And so under the current Michigan Zoning Enabling Act, some communities were more or less just kind of declaring it a commercial use so you can't do it in residential areas, which is where people want to do Airbnbs to begin with. And so initially this bill was essentially just said, it just sort of banned the ban by saying it's a residential use uh, and, and it's a permitted use in a residential area. And where it landed is I think the municipalities can limit it to no more than 30% of the residential units in the municipality and can limit the number of short-term rentals owned by a particular owner. And, uh, th- you know, that's a compromise uh, which shows respect to the issue. That, I mean, typically mm-hmm. land use is a local control, and I have further thoughts on how well we are doing land use regulation in our state. But on this particular issue, you know, it, it did wind up being a compromise between uh, the, the local interest and the interest that I, I was particularly excited to vindicate, which is that of a property owner. You know, renting out your house is something that you expect as, a, as an owner of a house that you'll have the right to do. And the fact that it's for a shorter time uh, than than people are used to expecting, I don't think should change whether you've got the right to rent out your house as a general rule. So, it's a policy that I did support all along the way, and and I, you know, it's a it's a compromise where nobody is as happy as they would be if 
you know, if it either had been passed in the original version for some folks and uh, not passed at all for other folks, but it, I think, does get the job done of making sure that if you if you have a house, you got a fair shot at renting it out the way you want to. So how do you see this as actually having an, an impact here? I mean, this 30% number, do you see that as limiting? Will Is it in practice likely to limit people's ability to rent out their homes? Because like in Hillsdale, that's a huge percentage of to think of people who would actually be renting out Airbnbs. And and I know even with the college, we had put on our various events and tons of friends of the college will rent out their, their homes and rooms. But I would be shocked if it even approaches 30%. Yeah. um, I I doubt it approaches 5%. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, very small amount, but, but some of these other cities, perhaps it might get closer to there. Do you think that these, these homeowners might still run into a problem or is the compromise big enough where in, in practice, the cities won't really have much, so I think in the in the in the areas you're talking about, so which are primarily west coast of Michigan of Lower Michigan mm-hmm. cities, there are some municipalities where the thirty percent number is pretty close to where they are right now. And I should say that doesn't mean that a person couldn't potentially you know claim that they were unfairly kept out of the thirty uh, percent. Mm-hmm. Pr- presumably, if a city is over thirty percent now, uh, they're going to have to consider somebody who's doing who's doing this under this act. If it if it does become an act, uh, a pre-existing nonconformity that you know they wouldn't they wouldn't keep they wouldn't stay above thirty with new right. applications, but they probably couldn't take it away from anybody. So that's probably how it, how it'll get worked out. And and then I would think that basically a first come first serve municipalities can have other regulations, you know, registering rentals and things like that that are not about whether you're allowed to do it, but about how you, how you have to go about it. And those things will probably put some people make some people less likely to to qualify to be a short-term rental in those places. I would say in our area, it's more likely that you'll see, I mean, I don't know that anybody will approach the 30%, but mm. if you look at a, at a, a municipality uh, that has maybe a lake or two and a small number of permanent residents, uh, so just not that many residential structures mm-hmm. to begin with, I suppose if you had only, you know, several hundred residential structures uh, and, you know, many dozens around a lake or something like that. And maybe in in uh, our area, you could see somebody approaching that 30%. Um, but I do suspect that this is pr- pretty much going to be in the around the Great Lakes that that number really comes into play. And the municipalities don't have to do the 30%. I mean, right. you know, if you're yes. a township that doesn't mind uh, or, or a city that, that it wants to encourage, you know, your property owners to make the highest and best use of their property, you presumably wouldn't put this cap on there. And there are, there are arguments even within, uh, the municipalities that do have higher numbers of them. You know, if you're, if you're living right next to a short-term rental and you feel like every third tenant or, you know, every third person who rents it is a, a pain in the neck, I can understand you not liking it. But if you own the, you know, diner downtown that in that right. city, you probably do like it. If you own the, uh, the, uh, ice cream stand at the beach, you probably do like it. So it's not really, uh, even in even in a municipality that o- overall wants to limit it. I mean, there are people there who have a real interest in this. And, I, and I, I also just think that as a matter of statewide policy, you know, making sure that we have a place for both our people who want to go to the beach or, or whatever to stay and and uh, for people to come from out of state and, and um, spend some of their money here in the summertime, you know, this is a part of the modern economy. And this is how this is how this works and making sure that our state overall benefits from that. uh, I think it is a valuable it's a valuable piece of policy for the state as a whole. Again, it obviously 
there, it has its detractors from from people who live in some of those areas that are more heavily impacted. And I, I do want, I completely respect that. I don't think that it's, I don't think that they're off base in saying that they have concerns at all. Uh, but, but overall, I think it's a good policy. Yeah, and so to clarify again for for listeners here, you know, the city of Hillsdale townships, n- none of our local governments or municipalities have put in a cap like that. So, so none of us are currently in a situation where you might be at risk of not being able to rent your home. Yeah, if I could just say real quickly, I mean, I did have municipal uh, leaders reach out to me with with concern about earlier versions of this bill. I don't know that I've talked with any of them since it got into its final form. That does have some, again, it maintains some role for local government uh, here. But I also heard directly from uh, individuals, including realtors in our area, who think that this is good for the housing market to, again, to be able to put these residential units to their highest and best use. So it is something where I think, although it's controversial statewide, and I did have, you know, I have, I know that there is concern even in our district. I do think it's something that, in general, the people of, of uh, Branch County and Hillstone County, I think they value the, the, the rights held by a property owner pretty highly. Well, speaking of something that is not controversial statewide, um, House Bills 4997 and 4998 passed the legislature on Wednesday as well. And these bills, um, they're making it illegal to use a two-way left turn lane to pass cars. So we've got a few of those here in the district, uh, M99 north of town, uh, Route 12, Jonesville, and Coldwater. So so there were lots of support. Uh, I believe it was 94 legislators voted in favor. Only 11 voted against. One of the representatives who voted against it, Representative Cara, said, the reason is that while this use of the left turn lane may not be advisable, there's no reason to criminally penalize individuals who are capable of protecting their own safety and others while driving. That's what he says. I have good news for my neighbor, Steve. It's a civil infraction. It's not a criminal law. So I'll have to catch up with him on the floor tomorrow. He sits right in front of me. I'll, I'll make sure he understands that. So talk to us about that and, you know, some, some of the other objections that have been coming in, in recent years about traffic laws in particular, that lots of instances of police misconduct mm. happen during traffic stops. And so um, particularly on the more libertarian side, they say we need to make it a lot more difficult to stop somebody. Uh, we should have lighter traffic laws so that these types of instances don't take place when they really don't need to. We don't need any police-involved shooting for someone with their taillight out. But when you're thinking of that, obviously we want people on the roads to be safe. This is a very important debate for for just government in general. In your mind, when you're thinking about this, how, how do you balance these two issues of liberty, but then also safety on our roads? Yeah, I would. I, let, let's talk about this in three dimensions. The first is republicanism, small r republicanism. Uh, the second is uh, the the present circumstance on this on this particular like act, mm-hmm. traffic action, and the third is uh, whether it's a good policy or not. So, which maybe is the most important, but but these other two things are kind of preliminary in the discussion. So the first is this that I guess it combines the first two things. I mean, presently you will you can already get a ticket for this for misusing a traffic lane according to um, uh, the manual on traffic control devices, I think, and the and the uh, uh, uniform traffic code, which is uh, adopted by the state police, I think, and so it, it's a, it's a, it's already a uh, uh, something that you could get a ticket for for misusing a lane, uh, but this would put it into statute, and and that is kind of the Republican argument here, which is if we're going to have a policy, it is in my view better to do as much of that as a legislature rather than delegating the authority to administrative agencies, including the state police, to make a rule. So I like that the legislature actually looked at the issue. I'm not really, not totally sure how this got came up. I mean, it came up through the transportation committee, not through a committee I'm on. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really have all of the procedural history about how how we kind of got here. But 
Uh, I don't I don't really think it changes the present circumstance. And in terms of whether this is a good policy or not, you know, what this essentially says is that you can't go into a shared left turn lane. You know, uh, as you said, a, a good example in our area in, in Hillsdale, uh, although, I, yeah, 12, 12 is a good example. too. So let's use 12 because that would be true uh, in your entire listening area and in my entire district. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a, a center turn lane in, in parts of uh, uh, Coldwater on 12 as well. So uh, you can't pull into that lane in order to pass cars. Right. Uh, it doesn't say you can't use the lane, of course. I mean, the, the point mm-hmm. is to that you can pull in there in order to make a left turn, uh, but you can't use it for travel. Uh, the, the biggest objection I heard that, that I think folks had was that if you were, say, at uh, the Kroger on 99 mm-hmm. and you're trying to pull out um, and, uh, and you've got – it's clear – uh, you're trying. You're trying to pull out and go left to go north towards Jonesville, and it's clear on, in the southbound lanes, but not the northbound lanes. Right. You might want to pull out and kind of stall. You know, pause in the center lane. And I think that that as as a textualist, I'm not really sure that that violates. I don't really think it does violate the language here anyway, because you're not really traveling in the lane if all you do is pull into it and stop and then pull out of it as soon as you can. Um, but even so, you know, even that maneuver is probably not desirable most of the time because it does, it, it does put you at risk of, uh, of, you know, you're, you're now parked next to a lane where vehicles are traveling, you know, 30 or 40 miles an hour and you're trying to get out there, you know, sort of horizontally or whatever. It's not, it's probably not an ideal, uh, circumstance anyway. Uh, but yeah, the overall point is that the state, not just because the state owns the roads, but because the state kind of controls our expectations of what's going to be legal and illegal. We need to be clear about it. And that's why, again, I think that it's good that the legislature actually kind of took a look at this issue. And for whatever reason, it, it seemed necessary to, to look at this particular maneuver and add it as, a, as an express violation of statute. And I think the main thing, it's kind of like uh, some folks like to, to crack jokes about immigration. You know, what immigration policy should we have for the United States? I mean, the, it doesn't really matter as long as we have one. I mean, as it is right now, we have things written down that we don't enforce and whatever, and that's really bad. So, so having a, a consistent policy is, um, is, I think, advisable. And it's necessary when we all, I mean... Uh, not as much as the bicyclists might like us to say, we all share the road and, uh, yeah. and we need to, to know what to expect from drivers around us. That's, you know, there are many times when, you know, you're waiting for somebody to turn right and they're slowing down and, and you don't slow down as much as they do. Cause you believe that that lane's going to be clear and you don't have to slow down as much. Right. And that's cause we get used to, you know, the expectations of other drivers. So I think having clarity about that is, is, I mean, it is really important. Um, on the point about like whether there are too many police, you know, too many uh, kind of ticky tack police stops or whatever. I don't think that's really a bad point, but again, I don't think we added one here because this is already something that they could have stopped you for as an improper lane use. All right, and and one more thing on the textual side of the bill that as you're bringing up that maneuver um, of turning left onto the road, I mean, it sounds like technically it would be using it for a left turn, which is what the bill explicitly would allow as you're turning left onto the road from Kroger or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the main thing is it says you can't pass, right? Like you can't overtake a vehicle, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't be doing that by yeah. by that making that maneuver. So as I told my colleagues, like, look, I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll get back into the practice and handle handle your case pro bono if you get a ticket <laughs> for turning left out of a Lowe's or something. All right, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Uh, we got Representative Andrew Fink here. We went in today talking about the continuing saga of the Unemployment Insurance Agency. Governor Whitmer has finally hired a new director. 
Um, director Esland Olson has been under fire for a while, and we've talked about this several times here. Uh, as you know, there's been fraud, there's been mishandling of um, the unemployment insurance, telling citizens they're eligible, giving them unemployment, and then telling them, oh, actually, you were never eligible, you have to repay that, and, and then all the back and forth with that. Well, our, our new appointee is Julia Dale. Uh, she's currently the director of the Department of Technology Management and Budget. Uh, do you think that her appointment is a step in the right direction? Do you feel confident about this? Well, it's good that I mean, uh, Director Eslin Olson was stuck out there as an interim for a long period of time. And again, I was very critical of the work that she was doing. I was critical of the work that her predecessor had done. Uh, and, but in any event, it's it's good to resolve an interim situation at an important department. So I guess it's it's good that it happened. You know that that she's been replaced. I don't know much about uh, her replacement. Um, I don't have any particular reason to think that, uh, because I don't think the governor has really understood how bad things were at UIA. I'm I'm somewhat pessimistic about this because the governor is the person who needs to set the tone for her administration, set the tone for her directors. And I don't think that she's done a good job of that in this department in the past. Um, for example, uh, director Eslin Olson, former director Eslin Olson was asked by, uh, a few reps, including me in different hearings about how much communication she had with the governor. And she seemed to understand our interest to be whether she talked to the governor as much as she needed to. And in fact, what I thought was more important is that the governor take notice of a department administering unemployment benefits for at the time, like 800,000 Michiganians. Right. So my concern is that our governor has been replaced. And so uh, replacing somebody who works for her is just not as important as uh, as that. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Thank you, Representative Fink, so much for joining us. You've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Thanks, Josh.